What is crack-a-lackin' fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Valley coming at you without my fantabulous co-host Grant Hughes, but still a fun show coming through. Actually, not fun because the news we're hitting. Well, some fun news, some unfun news. Before we get started, please, if you've not done so, remember to subscribe to us wherever you're consuming us. Hit subscribe on YouTube, like, comment, help the algorithm love us back. Also, subscribe across all the audio podcast players. If this is your first time checking us out. Again, make us a permanent stop. Reviews on iTunes, ratings, and written reviews help a ton right now. We are still getting downvoted. Someone was very mad at what Grant said about something, apparently. So help us out there. Follow us on all the socials at Hardwood Knox on Twitter and TikTok at Hardwood underscore Knox on Instagram. And finally, join our Discord. Uh, we don't get as many new members now. I guess we have like the core of the group there. Um, but the discussion always fun. It's tapered down a little bit. I think we're still in that post all-star or that all-star break malaise. Um, but come join the discord. A lot of great people in there. The link to that is in the podcast and YouTube description. If for some reason you can't access it because some people said they have problems, you're free to DM me on Twitter, reach out. Uh, however, uh, at Dan Favalli, that's uh, on the screen too on YouTube. Although it, it shouldn't be, I'm noticing this now. I'm going to change it. I want the show's name, not my name. Um, all right, so lots of news to get to. I w- wanted to catch up with the Quinn Snyder hiring um, to the Hawks. It was in the offing for roughly forever, I think, about. As soon as they fired Nate McMillan, you had an idea they were going to pivot to to Quinn Snyder. Um, that has been finalized. He's been hired on a four-year deal, I believe, that's going to pay him $8 million per. Uh, that is a lot of money. It's going to make him one of the highest-paid coaches in the NBA, probably rightfully so. He has a... Very deep offensive playbook. Probably would have been the most sought-after candidate on the market this summer once other jobs opened up. Uh, Which leads to the question, before we get into the future of the Atlanta Hawks, is it surprising Quinn Snyder didn't hold out for a better situation? I don't want to say I don't think so. I guess it's a little bit surprising, but I don't know what the better situation would have been. Do you think that, let's just say Jason Kidd gets canned in Dallas for some reason, though his relationship with Kyrie Irving was part of the reason why they traded for him. That's like not a great situation either because, well, what's going to happen with Kyrie Irving? Are you going to deal with a Luka Doncic trade request? Philly's definitely a job that could open up. Um, do you want to be a part of what's going to happen next, though, if they're changing the head coach? James Harden feels like a flight risk this summer. Joel Embiid could get a little bit flighty, too. Um, is he going to request a trade soon? It'd be the same thing for the Clippers. I think a lot of people have wondered whether Ty Lue is, you know, is he too married to Marcus Morris? Is he going to make the right decision with Russell Westbrook? That seems like it would be a more appealing job. But, like, Kawhi, PG... All the injuries stacking up on the roster, load management, those dudes are getting in their mid-30s. And that leads me into this discussion about the Hawks, who've been probably one of, if not the NBA's absolute most disappointing team. Their future is still sort of brighter than I feel like people are giving them credit for. Yes, you look at their books. They're not super clean. They have luxury tax concerns insofar as you should care about uh, Tony Wrestler paying luxury taxes. And Bogdan Magdanovich, he's going to be a free agent this summer, has that player option. I assume he's going to opt out. He's dealt with a lot of injuries again this year, but $18 million, that's a number that he can, you know, even if he's taking less of an annual salary, and I'm not sure he's going to. The cap is going up, and we have to get used to just players, you know, who are, let's say, the fourth best player on their team, third best player, fifth best player on their team, earning like $20 million. Um, but let's just say he takes an average annual salary that's less than 18 He's still going to recoup. Like, he could probably get you know, four years and 68 million or something. And so I think it would behoove him to opt out. You're also dealing with the John Collins situation. It seems like there's maybe more of a willingness to pull him off the court when it's, when it's going to matter most. And so how does that factor into it? But like, let's just look in these details. Well, the Quinn Snyder impact. So first and foremost, how does he mesh gel with Trey young 
it's a fascinating question. Trey Young needs to still learn how to play differently on offense. And I think that he is very much culpable in what I would say is awkward or weird or off-putting vibes behind the scenes. I still think Nate McMillan wasn't particularly inventive when it came to running his offense. And whether that's having Trey Young not really move around when he's off the ball, I doubt that's strictly Trey's decision. Um, whether it's not putting Trey and Murray in actions together enough, like why can't you just have DeJounte Murray? He's big enough, set screens for Trey Young with the ball and use them that way, especially with how Murray's been shooting from three this season. Um, and so the, also coming down to the way their offense is run in general, this is not a team that should have. I know how Murray and Young like to operate in, in between. Trey has that floater, Murray has that midi. But, like, you shouldn't be dead last in three-point attempt rate with this personnel. And I know you've dealt with injuries to Bogdanovich, but, like, you had A.J. Griffin has stepped up in the rotation. You do have the DeAndre Hunter on this team. Uh, this is not – and even John Collins, not shooting well from three, but Ken Jack up three is not a team that should be – and then Trey and DeJounte Murray themselves, not a team that should be dead last in three-point attempt rate. The offense has just been wildly uninspiring for, for much of the season. It's perked up a little bit of late. They're, they're eighth in points scored per possession over their last 25 games. During that time, I think we've just seen more life out of Trey Young in general, who remains an offensive system unto himself. And so I default towards, yeah, Quinn Snyder is going to make this work with Trey Young because I do think an element of this – when you look at the past two coaches was that there was a lack of invention on offense and also then a lack of buy-in from Trey young. And that can't be on Trey young strictly. If this happens with a third coach now, then yes, we can go ahead and pin it on Trey young because Quinn Snyder, we know is just like this offensive psychopath. When you look at how deep his playbook is and the way that Utah ran their offense, he also showed that he has the principles to adapt to maybe more of a star centric system. When you really look at how Utah played early on as they started to get good um, during the Gobert Mitchell era, let's call it, there was a lot of egalitarian equal opportunity stuff going on, a lot of ball and body movement. And that kind of dwindled, I think his offenses in the NBA changed overall, but just as Donovan Mitchell grew into this life force of himself, but you even saw it when Donovan Mitchell wouldn't be on the court, when Joe Ingles was still there and really good. Um, even when they kind of had my commie there a little bit, maybe not so much during with Bogdanovich, but just like the lineups they could run, they were still that ball and body movement. One, I think that you can get to a point where Trey Young is a part of that. And so maybe there's just a, a concession, a compromise of, all right, well, yeah, we have to put the ball in Trey Young's hands. Um, and but that's just what you do because that is going to be probably one of the most efficient plays in basketball because he is still that dude. At the same time, uh, there's going to be more creativity away from the ball or maybe in lineups at least where Trey Young's not a part of it. I mean, there's still just those DeJounte Murray units. Um, they started off the season. I don't have those numbers exactly in front of me, but they started off the season. You were looking at it like, oh, okay, there, there really might be something here. And since then, when you look at the, the, the lineups with Murray and no Trey Young, they have not been good on the year. We're talking about almost 1,700 possessions, uh, an offensive rating in the ninth percentile, minus 8.8 .8 points per 100 possessions overall. I do think there's been some um, encouraging signs when you look at, like, there's been certain makeups where it's the, the lineup, it was, and it hasn't seen a ton of time, in part because of the availability of the players in it, but, like, between Murray, Bogdanovich, and then A.J. Griffin now with Collins and then Okongwu. It's okay. You have Murray and Okongwu to sort of anchor, you know, bookend your defense there. And then you just have all these guys who are going to space the floor in Griffin Collins and Bogdanovich and give you a lot of offensive juice. I also think that's a lineup, by the way, moving forward, that you could really explore John Collins's floor game and give him more agency if you're going to keep him. I do not believe the Hawks are going to do that. Um, and we'll get to that in a second. But 
there's room to grow here. And I just refuse to believe that Trey Young isn't versatile enough to play in a more inventive, I don't even want to call it egalitarian system, but just something that looks dramatically different. And I don't know that the Hawks nudged him that to that direction enough. And if he's not willing to play that way, we can have that conversation, I guess, leading into next year is when you have it. I don't expect him to request a trade this offseason, despite the rumors that have floated around there. Uh, it would, I guess it wouldn't floor me at this point in the NBA, but that would sort of shock me unless he just clashes with Quinn Snyder, who maybe demands too much of him. And it does seem, I would be concerned. It does seem like Quinn Snyder had some trouble sort of steering the emotional, just like vibes element of the locker room, given Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell kind of being at odds, but they did also have a lot of high character guys in those locker rooms that helped there. Do they have that veteran presence in Atlanta right now? I don't know that you could say that. And so perhaps there'll be a challenge there for them. Uh, there's also going to be that awkwardness initially, at least of, okay, well, are they going to turn over the coaching staff midseason, or is just, is he taking on Nate McMillan's staff, which by the way, I'm pretty sure includes his son is an assistant on the roster, unless I'm mistaken. So an assistant coach. So I, I'm not going to read too much into what we see this season when there's not a ton more practice time where the Hawks are going to be focused more on getting into the play-in or the playoffs than anything. I'm more high on this long-term though than maybe I should be. I just have this way of, when we look at star pairings, it's always, oh, star talent figures it out. Like Quinn Snyder is kind of a superstar offensive coach. And I just feel like he and Trey Young will figure it out and this team will be better off for it. Um, now, can he coax more defense out of Trey Young? I honestly, I have no fucking idea. I just, I honestly have no idea. It's not like someone where we've talked about with, you know, let's use Kyrie Irving as an example in the past where it's like, oh, when he really gets into guys or when he's trying, you can tell and you can feel it. There's never been that even sustainable stretch from Trey Young where you're like, yeah, you've seen moments, but it's just like never strung together consistently enough to think that Trey Young could be anything better than like one of the five worst defenders in the NBA, let's say over a, you know, when you scale it out to a longer sample size, that's something the Hawks are going to have to overcome. And it's look, they can get away with certain minutes. Um, Clint Capella, a Murray, you have two of them on the court with young, maybe Hunter, that's going to insulate you a little bit defensively, but quietly as their offense has sort of grown and they've leaned into that model. I think part of this is Bogdanovich has played in more of these games. Um, AJ Griffin getting a role as well. They're 20th in points allowed per possession. They're not forcing a ton of turnovers. They also, they don't foul. That's fine. But like their defensive rebounding rate has been a little bit in the gutter by their standards. Clint Capella missing some time might hurt there as well. So I don't really know how to pan out the defense. It still feels like this team needs a bigger, bigger wing. And that's to where you look at this roster and it's, they're not incapable of making a significant upgrade. When you go back and sort of look at the, maybe we had sticker shock to begin with, with the DeJounte Murray trade. And I do think it was for a player of Murray's caliber, like to give out two unprotected first round picks that far into the distance. Yeah. There's a little bit of some awkwardness there. That being said, relative to the other prices that were paid for, you know, it wasn't anywhere on par with the Rudy Gobert trades or the Donovan Mitchell trades themselves. And it shouldn't have been. Again, those two players are, well, all right, the Rudy Gobert trades a different story. But point being, in a vacuum, DeJounte Murray was not on the same level as those players. He's had a better year than Rudy Gobert, though, I would, I would argue. You still have first-round picks. You have your own first-round pick this year. You have your own first-round pick in 2024 as well. In addition to that Kings pick, it is lottery-protected. But it should convey just based off like where the Kings are. And it's protected until Kingdom Come. It's a it's a pick where you look at those Detroit picks or Washington picks that the Knicks own. It's a pick that's going to convey. You don't know if those selections are necessarily going to convey. But the, the Sacramento pick, it's top 14 protected next year, top 12 
2025 and then top 10 through 2026. My bet is that one is going to convey. And they have uh, their 2025 first is going to San Antonio. Their 2027 first is going to San Antonio along with a swaps. Like they've lost control of their three first round picks. Like they can still make deals. Uh, they cannot trade their 2024 first rounder, but they can move that Kings pick. So you have that Kings pick. You have your pick this year leading into the offseason. You have John Collins, who, by the way, I still think is going to have some value around the league. He was almost traded to Phoenix, and I think you would have been surprised at what Phoenix gave up to get him uh, would be my educated guess, let's sort of phrase it. I'm not saying that they would have given up Mikhail Bridges for him because they, they weren't going to. They wouldn't have even have been trading DeAndre Ayton, which would have been just a nightmare fit for this roster anyway. I wouldn't have understand what the Hawks were doing there. So John Collins, going to have three years left on his deal, Average annual value of like $26 million. It seems high, but there's going to be a team that would believe in him to where you're not greasing the wheels of a John Collins trade, to where maybe it's you're giving it to a team. It's I mean, it could be a rebuilding team just because he's young enough. Even if you stop short of calling his contract an asset, like it's not net negative value. And so you attach, you have him, you have, you can trade up to, I mean, you can trade more than this, but I'm going to say you're not going to trade your 2029 pick unless you're getting a star. But theoretically, you can trade three firsts, including that Sacramento first, then John Collins. And let's not forget, like, we're past the point of considering DeAndre Hunter sort of untouchable. I don't know how many people want him on that extension that he signed who looks at DeAndre Hunter even by the new cap standards and says, oh, I want to pay DeAndre Hunter 20 plus million dollars a year. But like, you can move him and there's going to be the theory of him. And he has been uh, like, he's hit his threes and he's at 38.6% over the past month and a half specifically. Uh, that's going to be good. And the volume has been sort of, I don't want to say sketchy. You'd like to see him be at over five attempts per game, which he is not during this stretch. Uh, so I think that that's someone that you can tout even Sadiq Bay, uh, who since coming over from uh, Sadiq Bay, excuse me, my, my notifications were going off coming over from, Detroit, he shot 44.4% from three, and he's just really getting them up there. He's taking 6.2 attempts in under 30 minutes per game. So like, these are all assets that you have. And can you go in? Let's just say OG Ananobi becomes available. Why isn't this a team that can get in on that sweepstakes? It's going to be the final year of his contract at that point. I don't know why Toronto would have interest in John Collins after getting Yaka Pirtle and having Pascal Siakam. It would have made more sense before making a trade like that. Uh, it could still make some sense if they're moving Siakam and sort of rebuilding in that vein, but I don't think the Raptors are headed down that path after getting Pirtle. Still, you can rope a third team into getting John Collins, or you can use, like, at this point, Hunter and picks, and I guess if you include Sadiq Bay in that, that's not a, that's probably a starting point for Toronto. That might actually be one of the most sensible packages for Toronto to accept where you're getting a player in DeAndre Hunter who approximates some of OG Ananobi's defensive value. They're not anywhere near as talented there. Probably gives you a little bit more offensive stability when you're looking at his three-point shot and ability to uh, you know, play away from like the ball. And I don't whose on ball skills do you trust more at this point? I said maybe Hunters. I don't know. So like that, they could get in on something like that. And so if you had a Murray, OG Ananobi, Capella trio around Trey Young, like yeah, if you've given up two first round picks plus Hunter for that, I don't like I, I think you're probably at least a better fitting team at that point. I'm not saying that's the player you go after. Who knows if he even becomes available, but they can still get to that type of a player, that level of a player where I don't know if you can go in and get a star. I also don't know, you know, yeah, ideally a Kawhi or a Paul George, if they become available, even so, like if that was the case and you went up to three first round picks, like they are not, you can't rule them out of star trades at this point. It's they're 
their offers can be outbid. I want to make that clear. And so if other teams come along and say, hey, like we really want to go in on this player, the Knicks for one, even the Heat with the first round picks that they could give up and maybe dangling Tyler Hero. New Orleans for sure. OKC for sure. But if there's a team that decides that they're going to move a marquee player, maybe it's Brandon Ingram this summer in New Orleans. I'm not really sure if that's exactly what Atlanta needs. Someone who's not still not going to take enough threes as much as you'd like, but I would, I'd be intrigued by him in Atlanta, but an Ingram like could be just because he's better than OG Ananobi, but OG Ananobi himself, those are still players that you have the assets to get in on. And so I just wouldn't, I, I'm, I'm just not as down on the Hawks as maybe I should be. This season has been a disappointment, um, but I think that they still have the potential with the crux of this core to be one of the higher-end contenders in the Eastern Conference in the near future. A lot of stuff's going to have to break, right? DeJounte Murray's going into a contract year next season, but they are not devoid of options, and I think that there could be a real coaching upgrade here from Nate McMillan in terms of fit, in terms of ceiling, in terms of the way that Trey Young is used. Maybe we don't realize it immediately this year just because there's a quarter of the season left. How much practice time do they get? Yada, yada, yada. But don't look at the Hawks and just think that they're sort of like Dunzo, you know, their team, Mikael Bridges would be great for this team. They can get in on that sweepstakes as well. So my take is the Hawks hiring Quinn Snyder, really good move. And I think that if I were to pick right now, I think this is going to be a 50 win team next season. I don't, I don't really, that again, that's more of a gut thing, but I think they have another swing in them and that they have a pathway to being a lot better than they already are with this exact core. I don't know that Quinn Snyder makes that, you know, they're on pace to win like low 40s is he make the 10 win difference himself i don't know about that but i do think they have the talent on this roster to be better than they are right now but we aren't and i didn't even mention aj griffin as one of their trade assets that's someone who's always all of a sudden going to be coveted not saying you do move him but this team both as currently constructed but also looking at what they might be able to do assuming they're willing to break open their piggy bank I, I just i can't get out on the atlanta hawks future it's it's brighter than most people think in my estimation Another thing I wanted to get to, and this is some unpleasant news. Uh, LaMelo Ball is going to miss the rest of the season, presumably. They didn't actually, it wasn't framed that way, but he fractured his his right ankle. That is disheartening. It sucks. This has been the season from hell for Charlotte. Uh, I, you can't spin this in a positive light. I guess there are some masochists that really wanted to see you know, the, uh, maybe a lot more of Dennis Smith jr. I'm kidding there. Uh, he's played enough. Wanted to see the Hornets really solidify getting bottom three lottery odds. Like they were in play for that to begin with. Um, the Pistons have a Bogdanovich injury, the Spurs. They're not going to out tank the Spurs or the Rockets. Uh, they're four losses ahead of all of them. So, so if you're a real masochist and you care about that difference, okay, sure. Like whatever. Uh, but, there's just, there's no bright spot to this. LaMelo, I would say he'd been playing well this season, uh, especially again, over the last month and a half, I've been very impressed with just the, the three point volume and efficiency levels, 35% from three on 10.4 attempts per game. I think there's been Zach Lowe mentioned this on his podcast. There's been a certain selfishness to the way that he's playing on offense. What are his other options though? And he was still dishing out 8.5 assists per game coming on more turnovers. He opened things up a bunch for Terry Rozier and even a healthy Gordon Hayward. We saw PJ Washington's efficiency sort of uptick as well. I like the long-term chemistry that's going to be there with, with Mark Williams. So just like this is a huge blow to Charlotte and you want to see how he like can elevate everyone who's around him. And I think the bigger concern here now is this ankle stuff is becoming reoccurring for LaMelo uh, just recently opened up this year with a sprained left ankle. And then he was 
uh, back in January, missed some time with ankle and wrist injuries there. And now we're back to a fractured right ankle. It's officially just a concern. And I'm not saying it's a death knell on his career or anything. Um, look what happened with Steph Curry. He dealt with far more ankle injuries than this. Most of them more serious. Uh, I mean, this one's pretty serious, but like had a more, a handful of more serious ankle injuries ends up being like one of the 10 best, best players in NBA history. Anyway, just something to monitor though. And it's very interesting because he is Lamelo is going to be extension eligible this summer. And he, you're the Hornets. So you're going to give this guy the max, but now you have these ankle injuries in the back of your mind. That being said, not a blessing in disguise situation. I want to make it clear, but if you were at all worried as a Hornets fan or a, a Hornets media analyst or member of the Hornets organization, that Lamelo would somehow be the first player to, to punt on signing the extension. If it's put in front of him, this pretty much assures that's not going to happen. He has to kind of look within and like sense his own mortality after suffering an injury like this. And if you offer it to him, I believe he, I want to make this clear. I believe he would have signed it anyway this summer. It's like 110% certain he would sign it now. And so I guess that might be a potential side benefit of this. It just gets really tough because you want to see how he fits with guys on the roster where you're still sort of wondering like, what is their fit long-term? It's no one, you're not going to get rid of Mark Williams, but like, more of a PJ Washington Lamelo fit with Washington's head into restricted free agency. Uh, even uh, looking at it with a uh, you know Nick Richards, who's going to be a free agent this summer, I believe as well. Bryce McGowan's they just signed him. Like, was that a unit that you could rely on? By the way, Bryce McGowan's I don't want to. This isn't like a trendy. Oh, I, I watch basketball games flex. I liked that contract for the Hornets that four year deal that they gave him. I've been really impressed with some of the connective stuff that he has done for them on the offensive end. A lot to work on, but I was high on him coming out of the draft because of just his raw scoring ability. And I thought he'd be able to create at the next level. It's sort of been like flip-flopped here where just the connective tissue stuff he's doing for Charlotte on offense um, has really caught my attention. And so I uh, guess you get to see more of him this, this season. So that's fun. But like you need LaMelo to maximize this roster. It doesn't change anything long-term about the Hornets though. Like they're going to have one of the four worst records in the NBA. They're going to have high lottery odds. Maybe they get Scoot or Wemby. No, you don't think about if you end up with the second pick, not taking Scoot because you have LaMelo. Those two can work together. You don't need to plan around, oh, but we have Terry Rozier and got it. No, 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 no. You take Scoot and those two would be absolutely fine working together. And and so like that's the silver lining at the end of this. You're going into a summer where you could technically, if you want to, uh, have caps, have boatloads of cap space. If you renounce Kelly Oubre Jr. but keep, uh, the hold for PJ Washington, you're probably looking at like 18 plus million. That's more than most teams are going to have. If you decide to renounce PJ Washington, you end up in the the mid 30 millions. I don't know if there's a free agent out there that you want to go out and offer that much to. So I would you know keep the hold for PJ Washington and certainly keep him around rather than lose him for nothing. Unless a team just comes over the top and is like, Oh, $25 million a year for PJ Washington. That is not, if you give him John Collins money, uh, I don't know that you're going to be able to move him. As, as readily as a John Collins, to be honest with you. I've, I haven't seen that level of offensive flair from P.J. Washington in the aggregate. This blows, though. It's just, it's been the season from absolute hell for Charlotte. They didn't need to, you know, put pull a mail from the lineup to tank. Uh, this was about searching and sort of finding out what some fits are that can work long-term not seeing a ton of him and Cody Martin together this season because of Martin's injuries and additional Lamelos. Uh, is this someone who like, can you resurrect what's going on with Kai Jones at all? Um, what type of lineups make the most sense? You have a new starting lineup post trade deadline. Um, how that hasn't been able to defend at all. Was there any, was there any way to improve upon that? You, you, you wind up with this Lamelo injury, finding out less about yourself and what you already have internally when you're trying to scale forward. And I, I think that's a real problem 
Uh, it'd be different if I thought, you know, let's just take the I'm trying to give a good team here as an example. Let's use the let's use the Wizards or, as an example. If they all of a sudden want to get in on a higher end lottery sweepstakes, like yeah, you need to start shutting down your best players. The Hornets didn't need to do that. And I think first and foremost, aside from just sort of hoping that Lamelo is going to be okay long term, you also need to think about this in in the vein of okay, well now these these ankle injuries are starting to to pile up, and we need to monitor this long term and so that's just going to be something to watch for and then what does he look like coming back from from next year uh after having a start and stop season really to begin with all year where you know at the time of his injury he's so this is he's done so and so he's going to wind up having played in 36 games this year less than half of the team's games uh that's you know that's not great so just something to keep an eye on uh, speaking of injuries and this is just uh, this is equally well this is this is a higher stakes injury because this team is still trying to trying to do something. LeBron, after playing through, so LeBron against the Mavericks, we heard him say, I can't remember if that was the fourth quarter I was watching, or if it was just the second half, but whatever. Said he heard something pop and then finished the game against the Mavericks. And they ended up, the Lakers ended up, they were trailing by as many as, was it like, uh, whatever it was, 27 points or whatever. And they ended up coming to win, uh, coming back to win. But the right foot injury that he played through is now per Sham Sharania uh, serious? Like this was this is Shams's tweet. There's fear Lakers star LeBron James is likely to miss an extended period of time with his right foot injury. James suffered the injury in Sunday's win over Dallas, played through it, and the belief is he will be sidelined an indefinite amount. He also quote tweeted saying James miraculously played through the injury that is now expected to require multiple opinions, and the Lakers are bracing for his absence to be multiple weeks. This is catastrophic i still don't i think people are gonna be oh and they went all in at the trade deadline gave up that first round pick one they didn't go all in that was just a look at what jared vanderbilt is doing right now that was a no-brainer trade this fucking sucks though i don't i'm just i heard a pop immediately makes me think of an achilles he didn't there's no way he tore it because if he tore it ruptured it whatever and then played the rest of the game this dude is an alien we already thought he was an alien but like you can't no we saw like no it's just no we you can't I refuse to believe it's that. It can't be that. I'm not a doctor, but you hear a pop, you think Achilles, but you know that it, it couldn't have been that bad. I would think at least because how the hell he finished the game. He was not moving the same afterwards from what I could tell, but like there were a couple of possessions where he just got through Dallas's defense, which I guess really isn't saying much, but he's still going downhill, still putting some pressure on it. So yeah, I guess that would be the silver lining here. I want to make two things clear. If LeBron is somehow done for the season or by an indefinite amount, they mean most of the regular season, the Lakers are done. They were might've been done cooked to begin with, but I had them getting into the play in after the trade deadline. And that looks a little bit better now because new Orleans has just decided to suck it up uh, without Zion on offense. They can't hit threes and don't want to play Trey Murphy enough, even though he can hit threes. Someone explained that to me, especially when teams just aren't guarding Herb Jones. At this point, uh, the Jazz, they don't care about this season, and yet they're still just like kind of chugging along and winning their their schedule the rest of the way is not terrible. Uh, it's well, we need to talk about the strength of schedules in the Western Conference. The Suns are the only team as of now, this will change, but as of now, at as of entering Tuesday, February 28th, the Suns are the only team in the Western Conference with one of the 10 most difficult schedules in the league remaining on their slate. That's actually sort of weird. So the Jazz definitely have the second hardest schedule remaining in the West and their opponent winning percentage is 51% right now. That's the 17th hardest schedule overall, unless uh, playoffstatus.com is, is lying to me. Um, that's pretty wild. The Lakers have the third hardest schedule in the West, but their opponents have uh, won a combined 
excuse me. Oh, see, I'm reading this wrong. See, this is why. Uh, so disregard everything I just said. The Lakers have the second easiest schedule in the league remaining. That's, you know, their opponents that want to combine 48% of their games. That's good. Um, th- that's That's good for... The Lakers. So that might give them some margin for error here. There aren't enough teams in front of them that you look at and saying, oh, they're fucked or they're not going for it. That makes you believe they can still back back into a, a play in spot. The Thunder with the Shea injury, that is something to watch for. They've had the best offense in the NBA since January 1st, though. If he's going to miss an extended period of time, OK, you're technically in front of them right now. Maybe you stay there. Then who you still need to leapfrog two more teams. I think with the Zion injury, maybe you feel good about leapfrogging the Pelicans. Uh, I do not trust the Blazers. They really shit the bed at the trade deadline, in my opinion. I don't trust the Timberwolves either. I don't know if you can trust the Jazz but like the, or the Warriors, but you need to leapfrog. The West top six to me is pretty much set, even though I guess Dallas and Golden State are tied. I should, I can't say that. There's, there's three losses separating 13th place Oklahoma City from fourth place Phoenix. So I need to shut the fuck up there. Still. I do think, while I wouldn't guarantee it, let's just say LeBron is done for the next 15 games or whatever. Let's just, I don't, I don't have this uh, knowledge. I've been waiting. I, I say this for last in the podcast because I was hoping for some clarity uh, on what was going to happen, but no, we don't have anything on anything extra on LeBron. So if this comes out, it's dated. I apologize. Let's just say he misses 15 games. This Lakers team is like not definitely done. If he's not going to play again, no, they're not going to make any noise in the playoffs or whatever, but they're not like absurdly cooked. Without him, this is not the same team that they were before the trade deadline. And we saw it the way that they came back against Dallas. There was that game against Golden State last week where LeBron had a bad game. AD had a bad game. D'Angelo Russell got injured and they they still beat the Warriors. Granted, it was you know the partial Warriors, but still, that's not a game they would have won pre-trade deadline. Um, Russell dealing with an ankle injury right now. He did not play against Dallas, but it's, I don't think it's believed to be serious. So you're going to have him. That's someone who could create his own shots. He's been statistically one of the best pull-up three-point shooters in the NBA this year. And now you have like, you can build sensible lineups without uh, LeBron. You can envision that you can envision surviving on offense. Uh, The, the lineup of Davis, D'Lo, Malik Beasley, Jared Vanderbilt and Troy Brown Jr. They appeared in two games together so far. They've played nine minutes. They're plus 12. They're not going to shoot 65% from the floor forever. Like that's a lineup that could work. Troy Brown Jr. has kind of had some sneaky good minutes, by the way. But having the Jared Vanderbilt shot of adrenaline to where you can lean on him at the five. We've seen some like, I don't really, I don't, I don't want to frame it in this way, but like we've seen some frisky flickers. Can I call them that? Can we go with frisky flickers? Very few frisky or let's say limited frisky flickers from Mo Bamba since he has arrived in, um, in, in LA. And so that's something that can help you there. Just that's depth. Rui Hachimura comfortable getting to his own spots in the mid range. That's something you can look at. I know people hate Dennis Schroeder, but over the six games that the Lakers have played since the trade deadline through which they're four and two 37.5% from three, not taking nearly enough from them hitting a very high percentage of his two point looks, uh, like again, waxing and waning there, but you still have, and he's dishing out 6.2 assists against 1.2 turnovers during that span. That's a great assist to turnover ratio. You can float this team. Austin Reeves, we know he's been like great connectively for the Lakers all season. Lonnie Walker already subtweeting how his role is declined post trade deadline. That's probably going to tick up a little bit now that, uh, uh, now that LeBron is going to miss some time. Maybe like I already mentioned with Mo Bamba, yeah, not shooting the three ball. Well, but there's just, there's just been flickers and flits. Let's call them grabbing more rebounds that like really just hitting the glass. Well in there, uh, 
I think there's still someone as a standstill rim protector that gives you value. Anthony Davis, um, he's even when he's not having his best games, it's still just absolutely dominant. He was huge down the stretch against Dallas. You have a deeper roster than you did beforehand, a more competent one that can work without LeBron James. And so with the schedule not being too absolutely unequivocally brutal down the stretch, again, you have the second easiest one in the league. That's going to help you out as well. And so immediately, yeah, like tough matchups against Memphis on Tuesday, but then you have OKC without Shea, probably Minnesota, which is still going to be without Carl Anthony Towns and been all over the place. The Warriors probably still without Steph. What's going on with Draymond and Andrew Wiggins at that point, the Grizzlies, again, the Raptors have perked up the Knicks. That stretch is tough, but then you get like the, the silhouette of the Pelicans, the Rockets, the Mavs will be tough. The magic are percolating. You have the Suns then in the middle of March, OKC again is Shea back at that point. Uh, two games against Chicago. That's probably a gift. Minnesota, Houston, Utah, the Clippers, the Suns, the Jazz. It's not like you look at it and go through those teams. The, the league is so deep. You could very much envision this going super poorly for the Lakers. At the same time, it's sort of like, I feel like if you have Beasley and Anthony Davis and D'Angelo Russell, like you should be able to cobble together enough offense and then just because you have by virtue of having anthony davis i assume your defense is going to be pretty much fine that like this is not unnavigable and even in just the short time that we've seen uh russell beasley and davis play together without lebron plus 37.5 net rating it's been so few possessions what's interesting is the offense has been dog shit during that time it's been the defense that's carried them so i think that just gives you hope and like i would just throw vanderbilt in there those are your four best players on the roster which is wild to say that the Lakers didn't have or four of your five best players. The Lakers didn't have three of their top five players right now before the trade deadline. And so that's your, I know the Vanderbilt Davis fit isn't perfect, but Vanderbilt is just everywhere. Shot of adrenaline going to hit the glass can defend point of attack. Um, good play finisher. You can get Anthony Davis to at least stretch the floor a little bit in theory. And he can work from the outside in with the ball in his hands. It's not, those aren't minutes that you should one shy away from, and they could just be borderline uh, dominant. I don't know what they've been with the two playing together. I think they're the most I've seen them play together since the trade deadline was that, that Dallas game. And uh, I would assume the minutes were mostly killer uh, since a lot of it came as they were racing the deficit. Lakers have been a plus 18.8 points per hundred possessions. When those two play together, lean into your top four players, fill it out as you must. I like Troy Brown jr. The most, Maybe I trust Dennis Schroeder, I guess, more than the consensus at this point. Austin Reeves, like those are three guys who can fill like some of those wing minutes, uh, perimeter minutes, since Schroeder's not a wing. That makes this work. And so I'm not ready to declare the Lakers done, not going to make the plan. We also don't know the severity of LeBron's injury. I'm just, what makes me nauseous is he's played so well this year. I think he, if the season ended today, he'd probably finish in the top 10 of the MVP ballot, which is sort of just like this afterthought, given that the Lakers are sub 500. But the dude is age 38. The Lakers have been banged up at points. Uh, I respect what they did at the trade deadline. So I don't think that was a mistake that that was just as much to me about not just next season, but beyond when you're looking at some of the players they picked up as it was about this year. And so you still have cover in that. I don't think the Lakers are, are finished. If, if LeBron's done for the year, I think that might just suck the wind out of them to where they don't make the plan. But if you told me that they're going to get him back inside five games to play, for the year. I think I might just predict that they're going to make the play in anyway. That might say more about the state of the Pelicans of the Blazers to me. Uh, even though Dame just dropped 71 points on, on the Rockets, he's spectacular. The Blazers just fucking again, shit the bed at the, at the deadline. They have me cursing twice in the same sentence. Uh, I think that says more about my, it says just as much about my distrust in the rest of the West 
um, the teams in front of the Lakers as it does about the Lakers themselves. But this is not this is not a season ender for them. It's a, if you thought the Lakers are going to win the championship, LeBron's done for the year, and we need to have the conversation about, well, what the hell happens from here on out? Yeah, that's going to be awkward. I won't have that conversation just yet because we don't know the, the real extent to his injury. The indefinite amount classifier, though, certainly makes me nervous. The final thing, though, that I wanted to hit is there was a report from, uh, I think it was Shams this as well, that the NBA and the NBA Players Association are nearing an agreement on the a new CBA. There's a deadline of like uh, March something. I actually don't know it offhand. I already forgot it. But they are moving closer to an agreement. Maybe there's another extension, but the Players Union has communicated. They don't want an extension. They want to hash out a deal now. I think some of the – I went through it, and some of the most interesting talking points it are – uh, the luxury tax ban stood out to me is that they're going to figure out a way to increase it um, so that it's going to be less punitive on those initial bans where it's if you're zero to five million over the zero to almost five million over the tax, but they're still going to be heavily penalized when you get to the upper band of the tax. I'll see if it I, I, I'll see if that actually makes a material change to the number of teams that go into luxury tax. I still feel like regardless of even if they lessen those initial penalties, that so many teams are just going to view the luxury tax as basically their hard cap where it's, yeah, we'll go over the salary cap. But we're not touching the, the luxury tax in certain seasons. So we'll have to see if that actually changes. The thing that I found most interesting was the extensions. And so as of right now, unless a player qualifies as a designated rookie, I'm more just coming on the rookie extent off a rookie. Unless a player is coming off his rookie scale contract or, um, it's that an average annual salary mumbo jumbo to where they were making less than the league average to be able to pay them significantly above that, or their designated uh, veteran who's going to qualify for that type of an extension. The limit to an extension otherwise is 120% of the salary from the, the last year of their deal. And so with let's use Jalen Brown as an example here. Uh, if he wanted to sign an extension with the Celtics, the most that they could pay him in the start of that extent, extension is $36.9 million. Now that sounds like, oh, okay, 30, $36.8 million for Jalen Brown. I guess that like in theory, is that reasonable? Yeah, sure. But his max when he enters free agency in 2024, based off the current salary cap projections Checks in under that. I think it's like actually 38 million. So it's actually not that big of a difference. I'm surprised that uh, it was it was that close. I feel like I'm actually m missing something there. Oh, I'm missing the salary cap. I'm sorry. So his max when he hits free agency is 41.7. And so we're talking about a pretty big difference of about $5 million. It's even more stark for someone like, let's use OG Ananobi as an example here. And so this is probably like the perfect example. Um, if he was to sign an extension, he's going in the final year of his uh, contract uh, technically is a player option for 24, 25. But if they were going to extend him off his current number, the most that they can offer Toronto in an extension is 22 plus million dollars. That's not going to be enough when Ananobi's max, it, it's going to be the same as uh, Jalen Brown's, which is 41.7. I don't think OG Ananobi's a max player, but 22, 23 million versus 41.7. The difference is going to be, yeah, could he get 30? Now under... The new CBA, it looks like that you're going to be able to sign them to 140% of their previous salary or 150%. And so let's use Adanobi as an example here. Again, if you're going to give him 150% of his final year's salary, now it's under up to about like $28 million. That is significantly more than 22, 23. Uh, it's still pretty far away from his max. And so I do wonder how much of a difference that would make, but it would certainly make more of a difference for someone like 
Jalen Brown, because I think at that point you yeah, you do at that point, you get to Jalen Brown's max. And so it would allow flexibility in those instances. It's not a perfect solve, um, but it certainly helps. And I would be interested to see if that's the final number it ends up at. And I do think that would probably serve as a deterrent for free agency or act as another repressor for free agency. We're already seeing players sign extensions, force trades later or lock up long-term money and force trades later. Um, I don't, I, I, I don't think that this is going to be good for a good harbinger of if you like the, the star movement in free agency, we were kind of looking at this as, okay, when the cap goes up because of the infusion of TV money, like we might see a, we might see free agency be reinvented or you know, rejuvenated for at least a couple of years that might go out the window. If you're allowed to get to a player's max or just give them 150%. Um, that being said, like the market will eventually stabilize when you're looking at the cap. And so long-term would it make much of a difference? And even if you're Jalen Brown and you're looking at, okay, it says my max is 41.7 million right now. When I hit free agency, if the cap is going to go up by like $10 million or something, then no, or even more than that, as they're smoothing it out, you're probably going to be less inclined because you are a max player. And so he's, you're not going to get to your max salary then all of a sudden, and it'll be even less, uh, of an incentive for someone like OG Ananobi to where, yeah, okay, maybe Jalen Brown still gets to his max technically since it wouldn't scale up that much, but someone like OG Ananobi is so far away from what his max would be that even the 140 or 150% doesn't make much of a difference. I do think it would make a material change to the players who don't get to their max but are considered consensus max players. It helps them get there. And so the Jalen Brown situation would be perfect. It weeds out the uncertainty in those situations. However, I do wonder if the 140, 150% extension rule would lead to more bad, bad contracts to where you're seeing players who are, let's say an OG and a Nobi type who has a, you know, maybe a, let's at least, let's do this, a Jordan Clarkson type where he's at 13 million a year. And now you're all of a sudden allowed to sign him to a deal that starts at 19.5 million. So you're paying $20 million for a Jordan Clarkson. That contract probably isn't going to age well. So would it make teams out of fear, maybe the market wasn't there for them at the trade deadline. They're too important to the culture. They don't want to lose them in free agency. Does it lead to more bad deals for the players who are so far, not even just so far below max, but they're not, they're not even fringe stars. Uh, that would be a question I have. The other thing that stood out is, so they are addressing the age limit. Uh, the NBA is like pushing for lowering the age limit to a team. That was per Shams. He puts in there what I thought was interesting uh, sources say the union is pushing for conditions that would facilitate veteran players providing tutelage and orientation to high schoolers entering the league. The players union wants to maintain the presence of veteran players and not allow newcomers to replace them, especially in the cases of teams with high school prospects who enter the NBA. I have no fucking idea what that actually means. Dan Feldman of Dunk Don had pointed out, does this mean that the high school players aren't going to count towards the roster? I don't think it, it would be that. I just feel like, are you going to be able to have sort of a de facto extra roster spot in general that has to go to a player who has X amount of years of service in the NBA. I don't even know if, and I would assume that does offset the difference unless teams are going to, you know, flock to a bunch of 18 year olds. So if you're having one 18 year old in your roster having that extra roster spot for a guy who maybe is not playing, but is the veteran that offsets it. Now, if you have two, because some teams are going to have multiple first round picks, it doesn't offset it as much. If we're talking about teams that take gambles on multiple 18 year olds, but that feels like it would be the cleanest way to get there. I understand where the union is coming from though. Trying to look out for 
it's veterans. I'm just in favor of, you know, the one and done stuff, I think probably hurts the college basketball product in general. Um, it doesn't invite continuity there. We're already seeing more higher profile players end up in the G league or not go to, you know, not being attending uh, college at, at all. So I, I like the idea of them being able to declare for the NBA right away. I don't have an issue if you're going to, you know, give someone the honor, like the Adonis Haslam roster spot is what we could, what we could essentially call this. Um, I want, I, I, I get why the players union is fighting for this. I don't know. I've seen people point out that the players should want the 18 year olds to, to come in. And I don't really know what the, like, I, I don't really know what the, saying it would be good for the players if 18-year-olds come in. Yeah, the 18-year-old players who are coming in who get to make their money quicker as they should, I, I still think it would hurt. Like this concern about reducing the age limit among veterans is is absolutely fair. And so I'm interested to see where they land with the whole trying to preserve spots for veterans or is it like a special role on the, the coaching staff? But even then, there, there are guys, like, again, yeah, the case you don't as has them, that might work. But like are people are going to know that they're in that roster spot. So how much... How much of an impact does it actually have? And there are also going to be guys that maybe are fringe NBA players, but like they're still good enough to play a bunch and get paid a bunch overseas. And so if they don't think that they're going to have, if it's a roster spot where they know they're not going to play, how much does that actually change? Like this makes a difference for the Adonis Haslam types or for team, you know, wanted to get Jamal Crawford this season. who's still not an NBA roster, but like, is it going to be what Mello is not going to take that role? Like he's still not on a roster now. Mello is not going to take a roster like that. So I'm interested to see, what the actual solve here is insofar as there, there is one that's going to do it for me on the news catch-ups. Uh, I think we hit, I think I hit everything that, that I wanted to. Oh, the, the bucks were sold uh, Jimmy Haslam, the, the Cleveland Browns owner who does not seem like a very good human being. You can go read uh, Seth Wickersham's 2019 deep dive uh, on his Browns ownership about that. They were valued at $3.5 billion, which is super fucking high. I want one of these flagship franchises to be sold just because I really just want to see like, what would it, I want the Knicks to be sold because I fucking can't stand James Dolan. But like, I want to see if the Lakers or the Warriors or the Knicks just went on the market, even if they get pulled. Like, I just want to see what the franchise evaluation is. Cause we know 4 billion for Phoenix, 3.5 for Milwaukee, uh, which is what are those flagship teams? Like when the market comes into play, obviously Milwaukee, has and even now Phoenix with Kevin Durant, like they have some of the most marketable superstars in the league. And Phoenix is like one of the most desirable markets among players. But I think when you're looking from brand perspectives like New York, Los Angeles, maybe even Chicago, and then of course Golden State with their uh arena setup, uh, would be I just I'm not even gonna throw a number out there because I'd probably be wrong and or I'd be I'd be too wrong where I didn't go high enough or I went too high just because I'm smitten or blown away by what I think the earnings potential is or how they would be viewed. Uh something to just look at. I don't really know what uh, Haslam ends up getting for the team. Uh, we know that Lazary owns 25% of the bucks and that he had that governor set up where they alternated five-year terms as Milwaukee's primary gun governor. I haven't seen anything about how that structure is going to work uh, because does he just take over Lazary's term and only get a little bit of time in the governor uh, as a team governor, and then it turns over to Eden's or is there like a new agreement put in place just now? Uh, we don't, I haven't seen enough of the details on it, but my biggest takeaway is that the Bucks are worth uh, a shit ton of money um, as our like NBA franchise evaluations. So uh, we'll see what happens when the next teams get sold. And I wonder if just like seeing these teams get sold is, do we ever get to a point where they think that there's going to be like a bubble popping? And that's why we see maybe more of these guys sell their equity 
in the teams. That's just a curiosity that I have. We'll have to see sort of where it's coming from. Hope you enjoyed this. Please remember to subscribe to us on all your podcast players and on YouTube. Both fronts help us a ton. Tell people about us. Shout outs on Twitter. We're tweeting our promos. It all means a bunch. Join our Discord. Join our Discord. Uh, I would like to see us get to 200 members, and we're closing in on there. So the link to that is in the podcast and YouTube description, or you can reach out and ask me for it at Dan Pavali. Until next time, and as always, I leave you with the shout-out to the one, the only, the indelible Frank Healy.